0: Among some groups, there's this stereotype of French citizens. You've heard that French waiters are snooty, for example, or that they don't ever get work done because they're taking four-hour wine-infused gourmet meal breaks multiple times a day. I will be the first to tell you that in my trips through France, including a stint studying abroad, I never once was treated rudely by wait staff and I witnessed plenty of businessmen dropping into a small cafe for a quick snack as opposed to a long dinner break. Regardless, These thoughts do persist, and one of those is that the French are way okay with extramarital affairs and that every man has a mistress. In fact, a great article on the website Salon a few years back said, of course, that this is a vastly overblown image of relationships in modern France. Even so, we are still enamored with these thoughts of France, especially Paris that stem from our turn-of-the-century romantic concepts of the Moulin Rouge, can-can dancers, suave Frenchmen, and the City of Love and Lights. But it's often strange to understand that, in the mid-19th century, France was as staunchly Victorian in their mores as, well, the Victorians in England. And so it was a huge, huge shock when one single painting by Edward Menet burst onto the scene in 1865 and brought sex and a lot of other things boiling up to the surface of a very unprepared Paris. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today we are continuing our all new season of episodes dissecting single works of art that shook their contemporary worlds covering another painting that scandalized all of Paris with a shocking update of an art historical masterpiece. Edward Manet's Olympia. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. We've discussed French painter Edward Manet a couple of times in past episodes of the Art Curious Podcast. First, we tackled his relationship with another artist, Bert Morisot, in episode 14. We also touched on his friendship with Edgar Degas and their intense falling out in our art rivalry season earlier this year. But today, we are doing something a little different. We're diving deep into the creation of one of Manet's most infamous works, a piece that still garners attention and whispers from art lovers and tourists alike when they view it today at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. But first, let's get a little background refresher on Edward Manet. Edward Manet was born in Paris on January 23, 1832, the first son of Auguste Manet, a high ranking civil servant in the Ministry of Justice, and Eugie Desiree Fournier, the daughter of a French diplomat posted to Stockholm. So, there will be no story of the poor struggling artist here, because Manet's family was an upper-class family with strong political connections and the cash to back him in his chosen career, which wasn't originally going to be art at all. His first dream was to become a high-ranking naval officer, but it turns out that Manet wasn't a very promising student. Teachers at his secondary school called his work, quote, wholly inadequate, and when he attempted to pass the entrance exam to the Naval Academy, he totally bombed it. Nevertheless, he was committed to the life of the sea, and so he secured a spot on the training ship bound for Rio de Janeiro at age 16. When the ship returned to France the following year, he attempted that exam for the Naval Academy again, but no dice. Surely this was a really depressing time for Edward Manet, but he did make lemonade out of those lemons, and thought back to the many drawings and caricatures that he made of officers aboard his training ship, so why not try for a career of art instead? With his parents' reluctant blessing, and their money, too, Manet gave the life of a painter a shot, and I think we can all agree now that this was a pretty good idea. Edward Manet spent the next decade of his life doing the typical things that a 19th century artist would do. He first enrolled as a student on the Register of Copyists working in the Louvre, and then moved on to some more official training via the studio of the academic painter Thomas Couture. But it seems that this time period left Manet with some uncertainty, and he frequently complained to Couture and his fellow students, saying, quote, I don't know what I'm doing here. Nevertheless, these complaints were all for naught because Manet didn't leave. In fact, he ended up staying under Couture's tutelage for six whole years. During that time, he also took a trip to Italy with his younger brother, Eugène, and he had an extremely productive time in Florence, where he made copies of various works by other master painters, including Fra Filippo Lippi and, most tellingly, Titian's masterpiece, Venus of Urbino, a seductive nude that made a very important, very lasting impression on him. By 1859, Manet was feeling confident enough in his abilities, at age 27, to submit a painting to the Paris Salon, the most important art exhibition of the year, and probably the most important art exhibition of all Europe at that time. We've talked a little bit about the Paris Salon on the show in the past, suffice to say that this was one huge art exhibition, in terms of its power in the art world. More than huge, actually. Anyone who was anyone attempted to be seen in and at the Salon and it was important enough that artists from other countries even tried to break into it. In 1859, Manet presented a work modeled after the style of the great Spanish master Diego Velazquez, a piece called The Absinthe Drinker. This was to become Manet's first great painting and shows the artist delving headfirst into that modernist obsession. Life of those who spent their time in the streets—prostitutes, vagabonds, the destitute—that was so fascinating to 19th-century poets, writers, and artists who felt that they most truly represented what life was all about, rather than those with stuffy, upper-class mores. It's entirely possible that its lowbrow subject matter may have been one of the reasons that the absinthe drinker was rejected by the Paris Salon. No doubt this was a considerable blow to Manet, but like a moth to a flame, he kept at it, going back year after year with the intent on breaking through to the highest echelon of artistic achievement. In 1861, for example, he was admitted to the Salon, and one of his works, called The Spanish Singer, was even awarded an honorable mention. This is it. He made it, right? Well, at the next calls of the Salon, every single painting he proposed was denied outright once more. Sometimes I wonder how much this ongoing snubbing played into the development of two of Manet's most fascinating and surprising works of art. His 1863 Déjeuner sur l'herbe, or Luncheon on the Grass in English, and our artwork of the day, his iconic Olympia from the same year. Maybe he was mad about being rejected again and again, and so specifically sought to create works meant to incite shock or anger. But then again, maybe not because Edward Manet wasn't the only artist being snubbed by the Paris Salon repeatedly. So many artists rejected, in fact, that Napoleon III, head of the Second French Empire, decreed that an art exhibition should be formed specifically for these artists, called the Salon des Refusés. And it was there that Manet showed these two shocking works of art, both of which are the perfect showcases, by the way, of Manet's status as an art history nerd. Both of his compositions are deft quotings of famous Renaissance works of art, Luncheon refers to three figures from a lost work by Raphael called The Judgment of Paris, known primarily today via an engraving after it by one Marcantonio Raimondi. It's also a nice little callback to works of one of his other favorite painters, Titian, who also presented these scenes of nudes and lush landscapes with clothed male musicians, such as Titian's pastoral concert from 1509, Today at the Louvre. But if Luncheon on the Grass was a little nice wink to Titian, then Manet's Olympia is a full-on 19th century Parisian street culture update of Titian's Venus of Urbino, probably one of his most iconic paintings. It's like the reboot of Titian's masterpiece. In Titian's original, we are presented with a seductive blonde nude, decked in pearl earrings and a golden bracelet lying on this daybed, who clutches a bouquet of roses in one hand and delicately drapes the other across her pelvis in an act of modesty that actually draws the eye there. And with this little delicate come-hither glance, you've got to know that this woman is looking to get some action. A sweet dog, Fido, the symbol of fidelity, snoozes at her feet. So, who is this Venus? Well, she's long been assumed to be a newlywed slash titular goddess of love, but that's a whole other level of analysis and interpretation. And you've got to read the late great Rona Goffin's text on this work if you're looking for that deep dive. Suffice to say this. It's a truly gorgeous painting meant to represent the sacredness of love in an erotic yet virtuous way, all languid and soft. Edward Manet's Olympia is not that. His painting features a sallow nude contrasted against a dark green and brown background. Like Titian's Venus, Olympia is also reclining on a daybed, but there's really no lounging or resting about it. She's stiff and awkward, her feet bearing worn slippers. She has vibrant red hair with a blooming rose tucked behind her ear, a reference perhaps to the Venus bouquet, and like Venus, she also wears jewelry, a golden bracelet, and a simple black choker. Very chic. But whereas Venus was all come-hither eyes and rosebud mouth, Olympia's gaze is unwavering and not exactly welcoming. Her hand, too, covers her pubic area, but there's no gentleness or suggestiveness. Instead, it's clamped down between her short legs, with her fingers pointed outward like a claw, ready to attack. In this way, she's the opposite of Venus. She's totally hands-off. By her foot is a black cat, arching its back, hissing. It's actually a semi-vague and slightly misshapen figure, but it's there on your far right. You just have to keep your eyes out for it. And finally, a third figure, behind the bed, entering stage left is a black servant woman bearing a large paper-wrapped bouquet of flowers, which Olympia pointedly ignores. Venus, the goddess of love? No. She's Olympia, a tired, worn-down Parisian sex worker, receiving gifts from the past or a future suitor and looking at us as to say, next? How do we know? Well, as if the signs weren't enough, there's the name herself, the title of the painting. Olympia was known, at the time, to be a very popular pseudonym for French sex workers. What's also noticeable about this painting is the manner in which Manet chose to depict his Lady of the Evening. Like so many works that would fall squarely in Manet's camp and style, it is a truly modernist work, where everything is stark, flattened, graphic even. Olympia herself is defined with lines instead of shadows, painted roughly and with clearly evident brushstrokes. Manet is very clearly breaking down conventions here, allowing his muse to be the anti-Venus of Urbino, not just in subject, but also in style. So, was this painting loved when it was presented to the public? You already must know the answer to this one. No, it most certainly was not. When it was revealed in 1865, two years after its completion, the reception was so negative that Manet complained to his friend, the writer and poet Charles Baudelaire, that all of Paris was, quote, raining insults upon me. People were pissed. But the reasons why they were so angry were many, and some of those reasons may surprise you. That's coming up next, right after this break. Hey, Art Curious listeners, have you ever wanted to learn how to do what I do and create a successful podcast of your very own? Let me help you. In Podcast Perfection, the right questions and tools for starting a winning audio show, I take you step-by-step through the process of planning and executing your own audio show. This book is only available for purchase on Amazon, or you can read it for free with Kindle Unlimited. So check it out. Search for Podcast Perfection on Amazon right now and make it yours. That's Podcast Perfection on Amazon. Welcome back to our Curious. The negative reception for Edward Manet's modern nude, Olympia, was swift. But people hated the painting for a variety of reasons. Some expected, but some also rather unexpected at least to our 21st century minds. The first reason that so much opposition was thrown in Manet's direction is a fairly obvious one. People just didn't like the subject matter. A sex worker? That was so in your face, especially considering that his sex worker's clients would most likely have been bourgeois men, and many of the same men who would frequent the Paris salons and then see this painting alongside their wives. It was almost as if these men were forced into a staring competition with the image of a woman who symbolized all of their nocturnal misdeeds, which were increasing in popularity at the time due to the growing café and nightlife culture that the creation of Paris Grand Boulevards under the guidance of Baron Haussmann begat. All of a sudden, the men of Paris had more free reign to enjoy drinking, dancing, and cavorting than ever before, all while their good bourgeois housewives stayed home and tended to all things domestic. And the women who were out drinking, dancing, and cavorting alongside those men? Well, if they were out after dark, and especially if they were single and hanging around with married men, you know that they were considered to be the wrong kind of gal. And this was who Olympia represented, not an idealized nude, but the kind of real woman taken advantage of in everyday 1860s Paris, a sex worker. And the bourgeoisie did not want to stand face to face and acknowledge the side of their otherwise prim and proper society. Another reason that critics dismissed Olympia outright was, believe it or not, art historical in nature, and it stems partly from the way Manet chose to depict his subject. First of all, as we noted before, Manet's painting style broke from the expectations of the traditional nude. Viewers declared that the dark outlines of her body made her look dirty. Her unidealized proportions, those short legs and knobby knees, were considered deformed and unattractive. She wasn't beautiful. Or at least, Manet wasn't overly concerned with highlighting his model's beauty, and in fact seems to have gone out of his way to make her appear as shabby and used up as possible. And from an art historical standpoint, this was just flat-out unacceptable. This is just not how a nude is represented, you can hear some stuffy art critic exclaiming. I picture him with a monocle, by the way. Nudes are supposed to be soft, generous, classically lovely, a blank canvas, no pun intended, for the perfection of the female form. It's Greek sculptures like the Capitoline Venus, like Bernini's Daphne. It's Ruben's Dimpled Maidens, and yes, Titian's Glowing Goddess. How dare Manet degrade the tradition of the female nude by choosing to show us a naked sex worker? Manet was supposed to use the classical past as a basis for all forms and subject matter, so that even if you were using a prostitute as your model for your actual work of art, you weren't supposed to admit this outright on canvas. You were supposed to cover it up and call her a goddess, like... Diana or Venus or whatever. But not Manet. In her article, Manet, a Radicalized Female Imagery, art historian Eunice Lipton writes that Manet had, quote, robbed the concept of the nude of their mythic scaffolding. There was no going back now. Quick side note here about the real woman that Edward Manet is painting, our Olympia. We know exactly who she is, and she was a frequent muse of Manet's. Perhaps not as much so as Berthe Morisot, as we discussed in episode 14, but this woman does appear over and over again in Manet's works. Her name was Victorine Murand, and for the longest time, she was dismissed outright as being exactly who she appears to be in Olympia, a prostitute. Someone destitute who must have been so desperate if she was willing to model nude and or sell her body for money. But the truth of the matter is that Victorine Meurent was not a sex worker at all, and in fact had a career as a painter herself, even being accepted into the Salon of 1876, a year when Manet himself was rejected yet again from that same exhibition. But history until recently hasn't taken her role seriously because of works like Olympia, where her on-canvas role, so to speak, overshadowed her actual self. Victorine was not Olympia, and Olympia was certainly not Victorine. And it was really Olympia herself that caused the indignity of the viewers at the Salon. And specifically, it was the gaze and the stance of Olympia herself. So, here's the deal. Titian's Venus of Urbino is all sexy and flirty, and the main reason for her to exist is so she can be a satisfying vision for the gaze of the viewer, one who is assumed to be the male gaze in most art historical cases. And actually, this was meant for the gaze of one particular man, the Duke of Urbino, Guido Baldo II, who commissioned Titian's painting in the 16th century. But Olympia is not allowing herself to be penetrated by the male gaze here at all. And in fact, she defies it. She unabashedly stares down the viewer, surprised neither by her nudity nor the viewer's presence, and she makes no attempt to shield her body other than that claw-like hand fiercely protecting herself. She has agency over her body, and who gets the right to look at it in a way that nudes before her really didn't have. This was even different than other nudes from the same period, including some of those by Manet's great friend and contemporary, Edgar Degas. In his images of bathers, for example, nudes are shown in the process of completing their tasks of personal hygiene, washing themselves, combing their hair, but these women are typically not engaging with us as viewers and instead are looking away, or might even be seemingly unaware of any viewer which lends the works with this sense of voyeurism. But Olympia is aware, and she's being watched, and she's protecting herself because of it. And that was not the norm in 19th century Paris art. Or could it be even worse than that? Could this be the new woman, the new norm that terrified men? Much scholarship, especially in the last couple of decades, has focused squarely not on the central figure of Olympia herself, but the symbols that surround her, including her servant, who has been identified as a woman named Laure, who was frequently modeling for Manet and other artists in his coterie as well. The racial undertones and analyses of Olympia's servant here are so vast and completely fascinating, and far more than I can discuss here today. But the sexual elements of Laure's inclusion here are very specific. Time for a really quick deep dive. In the 19th century, there was this popular notion that black people were inherently more sexual than white people, a theory that was meant to confirm a racist agenda that posited anyone non-white as less civilized and therefore wild. The same trope can be seen in the Orientalist paintings of Jean-Léon Jérôme, Theodore Chassériot, and many others, which were very popular at the same time period as Manet's works. So in Olympia, the servant woman is a perfect foil for Olympia, black where Olympia is white, wild and frenzied by nature where Olivia is stayed and quote-unquote dignified. Except Olympia isn't that. Well, she's white for sure, but she is no gentlewoman. She's having sex for money. She's obviously working with the servant woman here, engaging in a different kind of transaction should she choose to accept the bouquet being offered to her. So, in the hint of this relationship and transaction is the hint that perhaps Olympia and the servant woman aren't that different at all. So, could Olympia also be an insatiable sexual being? As Charles Bernheimer beautifully summed up in a 1989 article in the journal Poetics Today, quote, the black maid is not simply a darkly colored concept to Olympia's whiteness, but rather an emblem of the dark, threatening, anomalous sexuality lurking just under Olympia's hand. At least, this is the fantasy Manet's servant figure may well have aroused in the male spectator of 1865. So both Lore and Manet were frightening, shocking, terrifying to men in positions of power in Paris as the turn of the century approached. As many of us know, even today, there is nothing more earth-shattering than a woman who is doing something different than what is expected of her, who is following her own mind instead of the whims of others. Edward Manet certainly must not have known it at the time, but what we see now is that he painted a truly badass feminist icon. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it's one of the bloodiest and most gruesome works of the Baroque period, and it's all about womanly wrath and awesome revenge. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com, And our social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Video, content, ideas. K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I dot com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. So please follow the donate links on our website for more details. And as always, you can go to our website for images, information, links, and blog posts for all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. Find us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell anyone you can about the show. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the shocking works of art history.